You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Remember HB2 in North Carolina? It is the anti-trans bathroom bill. And it's been getting a ton of press all over the country. It's really dominated the national conversation for weeks, for months now. It's been all Trump and all where do trans people get to pee in North Carolina? And to that point, I hope you all caught, and if you didn't catch, you're about to catch, Chris Matthews' interview on Friday night, last Friday night, with Travis Weber. He is an anti-LGBT spokes bigot for the Family Research Council, and he was invited on Hardball on MSNBC with Chris Matthews and with Jennifer Boylan, who is a prof at Yale and a writer and contributes op-ed pieces to the New York Times and also a cast member of I Am Kate on E! Uh, and a trans woman herself. And there was this amazing exchange that went on and on and on with Chris Matthews asking this question repeatedly of Travis Weber from FRC. Travis, tell Jenny what bathroom she should use. Well, you know, I'm not what's sure. wrong with should she use? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, well, well, just answer that question. I think I think people. She mm-hmm. said she would she would not be comfortable or not cause a problem if she walked into a men's room. Should she walk into a men's room? I think we can do things the way we've done them for decades, and people could use bathrooms according to biological sex. All right, I, I'm going to break in here for just a second. What we've actually done for decades, what we've done forever before state legislators like those in North Carolina began to attempt to regulate this, is allow trans people to use the bathroom of their choice. The law this twerp from FRC is on TV defending ends what we've been doing for decades, what we've been doing forever, and makes it a crime for trans people to use the appropriate bathroom. All right, let's jump back into this interview. What should a transgender person who identifies as a woman do? What bathroom should they go to? Just keep it simple. Yeah, well, well there's an issue of so, privacy. You can ask the question. Okay. Privacy what concerns. should they do? All right, jumping in really quickly. He still won't answer the question. What should they do? He ducks it. He dodges. What should Jenny do if she was living or visiting North Carolina right now? Should she go to the, to the men's room? Well, it, it, she, I mean, it's the question. You're dodging the toughest question yeah, well, here, which it, it is, what do you want it, people yeah. to behave like? It, it's, with not the fact matter, that, it's not a matter of what I want. Spoiler, it's, still won't answer the question. Should Jenny go to the men's room or the ladies' room? Well, she can use an accommodation bathroom that's, that is a, that's a single-use bathroom that would protect the privacy interests of the students on the other side. Here's what happened. Travis Weber, having to sit face-to-face with an actual trans person, having a trans person on television alongside him, able to respond to him personally, immediately, in real time, lacked the courage of his own bigoted convictions because the law that he's on TV defending, HB2, requires Jenny Boylan, a woman, to use a men's room in North Carolina. Period. Full stop. Yet it is a crime for Jenny Boylan to use the women's room in North Carolina. But Travis couldn't look Jenny in the virtual eye. They weren't in the same studio. They were on a satellite link. Couldn't look her in the virtual eye and say that because he knows it's a losing argument. Just like the religious right eventually came to realize that all their arguments against same-sex marriage were losing arguments. A few weeks ago, I wrote a post in which I predicted that they would lose. The religious right, the haters would lose on 
trans people in bathrooms and trans rights just as they lost on gay rights and same-sex marriage. They were telling ridiculous lies about same-sex marriage and those lies in the aughts, in the 2000s, they won them some battles. They carried the day before the Washington State Supreme Court where I live but they didn't win them the war because those lies, the lies they were telling about same-sex couples, we want to destroy the family, that we were bad for kids, bad for communities, we're going to destroy the country, end the human race. That was one of the predictions they made that if we allowed same-sex couples to marry, then the species would go extinct because if we allowed same-sex couples to marry, we would all instantly forget which whole shit's babies and forget how to make babies. Those were their arguments and they couldn't survive us. They couldn't survive us getting out there, speaking for ourselves. They couldn't survive our lawyers. They couldn't survive satire and ridicule. And the anti-trans haters right now, they are winning some battles like the passage of HB2 in North Carolina. But they are going to lose the war because the lies they're telling about trans people can't survive trans people. They can't survive the facts about trans people. They can't survive trans people and their lawyers who are many of them the same lawyers we had in the marriage equality fight. And they can't survive the scrutiny of fair-minded people like Chris Matthews on MSNBC who put it to this guy, who stuck it to this guy over and over and over again. Now, because it's important to hear not just about trans people, but from them, let's listen to something that Jenny Boylan had to say about HB2. Maybe the issue is really not bathrooms at all. Maybe they're tr because now gay men and lesbians can get married and they're no longer the whipping boys and whipping girls in this country. Now maybe they're trying to rile up people against transgender people. And it's not right and it's not fair. Boylan is absolutely correct. The minute marriage equality won at the Supreme Court, the minute the bigots and haters realized that it was over, they pivoted from demonizing and demagoguing about gay men and lesbians, about same-sex couples, to demagoguing about and demonizing trans people, trans men and women, particularly trans women. But it's important to note that HB2 doesn't just target trans people. They're not just trying to rile up people against transgender men and women. HB2 is a cover for all the same old hate. HB2 didn't just attempt to regulate and criminalize trans people and their lives. It also rolled back civil rights protections in cities in North Carolina for lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people. It prevents cities from raising the minimum wage. There's a whole campaign all across the country to raise the minimum wage in cities. Cities are leading the way. Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago leading the way on this fight. HB2 preemptively prevents that kind of activism, that kind of campaign, that, that those efforts from ever coming to North Carolina. HB2 also makes it impossible for people who've been discriminated against in North Carolina on the basis of their race or their faith or their gender to sue in the states in North Carolina. So what you see here is really let's imagine it's a, a Sunday and you've got a great big scoop of your chocolate hate and a great big scoop of your vanilla hate and your strawberry hate. You hate seeing poor people get raises. You hate seeing lesbian and gay and bi people not getting discriminated against. You hate seeing people who've been discriminated against on the basis of their race, their faith, or their sex being able to sue in your courts. They've illegalized all those things. They've blocked all those things too and then they've smothered all of that – their usual same old boring hate in a thick layer of trans hate whipped cream. So we can't even see what's going on underneath. This is really a hate omnibus bill with a big trans cherry on top and trans people are the – 
primary target of this legislation, but we're not talking about all the other awful shitty things HB2 does to all sorts of other people that these right-wing Republican shitbags have hated all along. HB2 doesn't just target trans people. It also targets lesbians and gays. It targets people of minority faiths in North Carolina. It targets people of minority races in North Carolina. Peel back the top layer of HB2, the anti-trans crap, and you'll find all the same old festering right-wing Republican hatreds. All on display, all there, all wiggling around in the fine print of HB2. HB2, an attack on trans men and women in North Carolina, also an attack on lesbians and gays and poor people working for the minimum wage and racial minorities and women and religious minorities. It's an omnibus hate bill. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines because you think this is just some trans bathroom silliness and it doesn't really involve you, it doesn't really impact you, it doesn't really concern you, read the whole bill. It concerns you too. They, the people who are after trans people, they're after the rest of us. They're after you too. All right, before we get to your calls, just one more point about HB2. In the final accounting, this is adding up to a net benefit for trans people, this attack, because it's leading to exchanges like this on television, because it's putting trans people at the center of a national debate. And when you're at the center of a national debate and the other side is lying about who you are and what you want and what you've done and what you mean, you will win that national debate. That is why we have marriage equality now, because we had a national debate where the other side was lying and demagoguing and eventually people could see through the lies and see through the demagoguery and we won. And people are seeing through the lies and demagoguery about trans men and women right now, thanks to North Carolina, thanks to the haters overplaying their hand, thanks to the haters exposing themselves as liars and demagogues like Travis Weber did on MSNBC last Friday night. That's why you see polls now showing a majority of Americans support allowing trans people to use the bathrooms that are appropriate for their gender identities and opposing laws like North Carolina. We would have killed for poll numbers like that at this stage in the fight for marriage equality. And we are already there now in the fight for justice for trans people. I used to say this all the time in the fight for marriage equality, even when we lost big Washington state Supreme court, New York state Supreme court, we lost big people were devastated. I would say, and I said that, and I'm saying now we are winning. Trans people are winning this fight. All right. Coming up on today's show, author Jillian Keenan here to discuss her new book, Sex with Shakespeare, and one of our regular guest experts, Joan Price, here to talk with us again about senior sex. Hi, Dan, and the at-risk youth. I live in the greater Boston area. I am um, 33. I've been married for over a decade, and my husband and I have a great sex life. And we've always talked about opening our relationship, and um, every time we kind of get to the point where we might almost do that, he does something where I'm like, whoa, I, like, <laughs> like I'm the only person he's ever kissed, much less dated. And when he interacts with other women, like he'll show me his emails or his Craigslist app, I'm kind of like, you are displaying terrible judgment. And that makes me want to kind of roll back this whole open relationship thing. So he has a job where... 
like if it came out that he lived sort of an unusual lifestyle, that he was very kinky, that could really affect his career. So he thinks it's better to use an anonymous email account, you know, maybe have some kind of affair out of town, use a fake name, et cetera. And I'm like, I don't think that in the age of the internet there are any secrets and it makes more sense to find some kind of ongoing outside thing with somebody who also values discretion and knows that you're married and you don't have kids and you're unavailable. Perhaps join the kink community locally. Uh, and, and he just doesn't feel like that's very possible for him. I, you know, I don't really know what to do because I, I really, I don't think I'd mind if he had sort of an ongoing, even just sex buddy relationship or, or greater than that relationship with somebody locally or like to go to events or something. But he, you know, he's a single guy if he approaches it without me because I'm not as interested in that. I have my own things I like to do individually. So what do you think, Dan? Is it is it displaying poor judgment for him to, you know, kind of post an egg Craigslist ad saying like, hey, are there any hot bitches who want to get together for a crazy fuck? I'm like, you have no idea who these people are, you know, and like, I'm interested in not getting an STD. <laughs> like, what... What what are the uh, comparative risks? I appreciate that you're not interested in getting an STD, but a study published in the Journal for Sexual Health in October of last year found that people in monogamous relationships were at the same risk for contracting a sexually transmitted infection or disease as people in open relationships because people get cheated on. So just because he's out there looking for hot bitches to do sleazy things with doesn't mean that those hot bitches that he wants to do sleazy things with are going to be unsafe, aren't going to be interested in protecting their own health or the health of their other partners. And so he'll hopefully use condoms with them and they'll want to use condoms with him and perhaps he'll limit himself. Also, you say it's about kink. Maybe some of the encounters he wishes to have aren't going to be about penetration or fluid exchange at all. And so they will be low risk for many most sexually transmitted infections, although the skin-to-skin thing is still going to be a concern for you. But if you guys are going to have an open relationship, as I have said on the podcast, you are kind of signing up for a higher level of risk for the skin-to-skin transmitted STIs, and you have to be comfortable with that. You can't be hand-ringy babies about, say, HPV or some of the others. Anyway, moving on to the other risk you're semi-high profile partner is running in the town where you live, you know, an ongoing thing, just like a monogamous relationship isn't necessarily safer study shows than an open relationship when it comes to STIs. An ongoing thing isn't necessarily going to be safer for him in the long run than a one-off out of town, nearly anonymous encounter. What if he has a regular fuck buddy with whom he has an ongoing thing who catches a bad case of feelings for him or he catches one for her and then you insist that he end it or he wants to end it because of her feelings for him. And then that person, his regular extra piece on the side, gets angry and outs him. That is also a risk. So you have to weigh the risks and rewards here. There's sexual fulfillment, which is a very, I think, important reward. People risk everything for that particular reward. And then there are the risks of being outed. There's the risks of people finding out. There's the risks of scandal and gossip in the community where you live. If it really is that threatening to his career, if he could really be destroyed by this, perhaps he needs to look into another line of work. Perhaps you guys need to think about transferring to another town where there are more people and there's more anonymity at your disposal. That's what's so great about a big city like New York is there are so many goddamn people there that it's easier to disappear into a crowd, including a crowd at a kink event. There's also the option of 
professionals. Because one of the things you pay professionals for is their discretion. And most sex workers I know take that obligation extraordinarily seriously. Think of all the sex workers out there in this, just in this country plying their trade. Think of all the politicians and celebrities that they have worked with and think of how rarely a sex worker outs anybody. You had the DC madam who had the names, had the drop on many, many political figures who didn't out anybody, threatened to, didn't. And in the end, tragically killed herself because she didn't want to go to prison, was driven to suicide while the people that her sex workers, her employees serviced were not outed except for David Vetter. And think about the only other outing I can think of is Ted Haggard who was outed by Mike Jones, a sex worker who was appalled by his hypocrisy because Ted Haggard was a high-profile religious bigot and stumping against and condemning gay people and gay sex and gay marriage while having gay sex and doing gay meth behind his wife's back with a sex worker, a male sex worker. Those are the only two instances I can think of off the top of my head. All right, there was Elliot Spitzer, too, who had to resign, but he wasn't outed by the sex worker. They were dragged out, him and the sex worker. That was exposed, but not by the sex worker. So sex workers, if you're really concerned about privacy, may be your best route because there are shitty people out there online. There are people hunting for photographs. There are people who take perverse delight in exposing others, and that's a risk you're running. But there are risks to never getting the shit that you want. There are risks to never achieving sexual fulfillment. There are risks that come bundled with frustration and repression and denial, which include acting out impulsively when an opportunity presents itself. If you have a structured way to get to what you want sexually, you're less likely to lunge at what you want sexually if circumstances align in a way that's riskier. But people will do that. People will try to wall themselves off from what they want and then what they want will walk into the room and they will throw themselves at it, not realizing that they're being filmed or whatever else the risks are. Without realizing the risks that inherent in that kind of lunge are greater than something more methodical and planned. And I think people are likely to do the lunge if they aren't on the methodical and planned route to the shit they want, to sexual fulfillment. I guess this is just a roundabout way of saying there ain't no risk-free nothing when it comes to sex. There's risks in not acting on this shit. There's risks in acting on this shit. There are risks in a monogamous commitment, risks in an open relationship, risks in hiring a professional. I think there are less than risks in trawling Craigslist in other cities, but risks in hiring a professional and risks in having a regular ongoing person. You guys have to decide what degree and level of risk you are comfortable with and go for it. And when you're in a relationship, both people have to sign off on the risk, particularly when one is economically dependent on the other and the risks being taken threaten their mutual livelihood or financial security. You have to be comfortable with the method he is taking to get to X. Right now you're not, and that's a conversation you need to have with him. That said, caller, you're going to have to reconcile yourself to some degree of risk, him taking some risks for this because there ain't no risk-free route to what he wants and what you want him to have. Hi, Dan and the Savvy At-Risk Youth. Um, I'm a cis female, 20-something, living in a mid-Atlantic city, and I just had a question about etiquette um, with a trans person in my workplace. So I recently started a new position and this uh, guy that I work with has been really friendly and really nice, and we've been talking a lot. And 
I have a good sense of reading people. I can generally tell, you know, what their age is and sort of where they're from. And I was able to figure out pretty quickly within a few days that he was, um, uh, you know, a trans uh, man. And today when we were talking, he finally said it out loud that he is trans in sort of a passing conversation. And in that situation, I wasn't sure if it would be disrespectful to say, oh, yeah, I know, because I feel like that would undermine his, you know, the fact that he's passing and living his life as a man, um, which he is. And I think everyone else knows him as a man very obviously. But I also didn't think that saying like, oh, really, was an appropriate response. So in this kind of situation, is there a protocol for sort of acknowledging that someone has said to you that they are trans and that you are okay with it and it's not going to affect your relationship at all? Um, And I just really wanted to know sort of what the polite thing to do in that situation might be. You seem less interested in acknowledging that he's trans and letting him know that you're okay with it than you are in communicating to him that he didn't fool you. That's that's where you lead with. You're open with like, wasn't fooling me. How can I tell him that I knew all along? I already knew. You don't have to say that. It's fine that you have trans dar or whatever you want to call it or everything dar because you can perceive everything about everyone everywhere. But you don't have to rub his nose in it because indeed some trans people want to be out and feel safe being out about being trans. Some don't. Some are invested in passing others aren't and you can't know this is something you can't know in advance where he falls on those issues so you pointing not at your acceptance of him but your powers of perception over him is a little fucked up and misplaced all you have to say when someone comes out to you as anything or comes out to you as trans in a circumstance like this is i'm really glad that you felt you could share that with me period the end and you can add on i'm an ally and a supporter Period. The end. You don't then have to add, and I knew all along. I could tell. That's just assholery. I don't think it's intentional assholery. You sound like a really nice person. I don't want to come down on you too hard. But there's no way that if you rolled that out in that moment, it would not be perceived as self-involved assholery. So bury that. It's wonderful that you have everything Dar and Trans Dar included came bundled with your everything Dar, but you don't have to broadcast that to everyone. Dan, 42, married 20 plus years, straight guy, more or less have a good sex life. Nothing has really changed in terms of that so much as I've been forced to change my lifestyle to give up booze. I have to admit, I probably had a problem with it, okay? And here's where the issue lies. So for years, I've really enjoyed having a few drinks, getting buzzed and having rather aggressive kinky sex. It helps, you know, delay ejaculation. It helps relax everybody, um, get a little bit more chaotic. Unfortunately, I work for a company that tests for marijuana. Yes, they do test. I actually know, have coworkers. Can't drink, um, but still want to get a little wild and crazy. Yes, I've looked at Michigan pot laws. Unfortunately, I don't have a, I don't really have a qualifying condition. Um, any ideas on how to take the edge off? Mind-altering substances that I can... I, at this point, I don't know. I'm a little frustrated because I used to live for that kind of drinking. I want to jokingly say, hey, they're testing for pot at work and you want to get buzzed and fuck around. 
try math, but I don't want to say that because you shouldn't try math and no one should try math. But that joke popping into my head, even though I'd rolled it out in a very unfunny way, it was a joke when I thought of it, reminds me of a friend uh, from about 12, 15 years ago, this guy I knew, and I, I still know we're buddies, who had a serious meth problem and had tons of basically crazy off the wall, but mostly vanilla gay sex on meth, just tons of it. And he really missed the intensity after the meth was out of his life. And he rediscovered that intensity and incorporated it into his sex life through a really kind of off-the-wall exercise program. I don't know if you've heard of it. The people who are into it are really shy about talking about it. You really have to drag it out of them. It's called CrossFit. And he found that sex after CrossFit, sex in the wake of a CrossFit high, physical high, all those endorphins pulsing through his body got him there. Sort of returned sex to that intense place. It was a little like having sex fucked up. So you might want to look into CrossFit. You also might want to look into getting your resume out there. You might want to look into getting a job and a similar company or transferring within your own company to Colorado or Oregon or Washington State or Alaska to one of the states that have legalized recreational marijuana so that you can have your pot and your intense fucked up sex too. I am, however, and I want to get this on the record before I go on to the next call, opposed to chaos when it comes to rough sex and substances. Rough sex, people throwing each other around, people doing physically taxing or potentially dangerous or harmful things, you kind of need to have your wits about you. You kind of need to be focused. You kind of need to not be fucked up. Or the person in charge or someone in the room needs to not be fucked up and looking out for everyone. So... Just wanted to throw that out there. You said one of the things you enjoyed about fucked up rough sex was the chaos. And I'm glad you got through it, all that fucked up rough sex, chaotic, unscathed. But I do not recommend fucked up, substance abusey, rough, chaotic sex as a general rule. Hi, I have a quick etiquette question. What is the proper etiquette if you see somebody in public who has recently stood you up for a date? So uh, scenario one, you see the person, they don't see you. Do you approach them and make them feel as horrible as they made you feel? Or do you ignore them like they ignored you? Uh, scenario number two slash B, um, what if you both see each other? What, if anything, do you, quote unquote, owe that person? Uh, what would you do in either one of those situations slash what have you done? So many slashes and subclauses in this question. I don't know how to organize my answer. I think the best thing to do in circumstances like that is to be the bigger person. And I think that means being cordial and friendly-ish, but distant. If you lock eyes, you smile and you nod. Just acknowledge their existence. You don't have to then go and unpack the wrong that they've done you. You also have the option to going up to them and saying, hey, how are you? I missed you that night. And see what their explanation might be. Sometimes people... Fuck up. Sometimes people get drunk, fall down, forget something, and then are so embarrassed or inhibited about offering an explanation for why they missed that date that they never say anything and then we read the worst into it, that it was an intentional snub. And sometimes it's an unintentional thing and it just a, they fucked up and they didn't know how to say so and they didn't know how to apologize. So you may find yourself getting an apology if you just walk up to somebody and say, hey, that was weird. That night you didn't show up, left me hanging, and then See what they say. 
That's what I would do, and that is what I have done. Hi, Dan. I listen to your show religiously, and I love all of the advice that you give, especially for married couples. I have a friend who I have known since I was nine years old, and she is very religious, and her husband of 10 years recently has been having an affair with a woman that he works with. She just found all of the proof that he has been cheating. It has spanned from I love yous to sending pictures of their children. They have four children together. She just had a baby three months ago. And I feel like she is in denial about the depth of his deception and how they will rebuild their marriage. He's not open to counseling. He gets very angry when confronted about the situation and the infidelity. And she seems to think that this will all blow over. I'm having a hard time being there for her and listening to her go through all of this, knowing that I want to tell her to fucking leave this bastard, to dump the motherfucker already. And obviously maybe not what she needs to hear, but is there a way that I can give her advice that would comfort her and help her move on? She has been betrayed and hurt and so manipulated into thinking that this might be her fault. And I want to help her put the pieces back together. If this were your friend, what would you tell her? I have to say that, you know, the last thing your friend needs on top of an asshole cheating husband is an angry, badgering friend who insists that she must leave that guy. She's got four kids. One of them's an infant. She may not be in a position to leave him. Denial may be the place that she knows on some level she has to be right now. It may be the best place for her right now. There are actually studies that I, I'm not going to look up because we're talking live, but there are studies that show okay. that a lot of happy marriages and content marriages that the, the people in them engage in a certain amount of self-delusion and they lie to themselves about who their partners are and pretend their partners are the people they wished they were and then interact with that fantasy version of their partners and present to the world that fantasy version of their partners and they come to believe that lie. And maybe that's where your friend is going to be. And maybe that's the best place for her. Maybe that's the place she thinks she needs to be for her children. Maybe that's a sacrifice she is willing to make for her children. Because it's easy to tell somebody with four kids, one of them's an infant, to empower herself by leaving her cheating asshole husband. But she's going to impoverish herself, too, in the process. Well, I will say, real quick, if I can, that she is the breadwinner. Um, okay, well, that changes I could, things. I, <laughs> I know I couldn't I couldn't say a lot in the message because I didn't want to over ramble. Um, she is the breadwinner. They are very religious, and he's one of the leaders in their church. And oh I'm my God, uh, so the hypocrisy atheist. just a, rises and rises. It hurts. It hurts deeply. And mm-hmm. I'm an atheist, and not that that matters. We've been friends since we were kids, and that's never been an issue. I'm very respectful of her and what she believes in. Um, it just, it just hurts to see her hurts. not holding him accountable. Okay, that's, you know? that's not your job. It's true. You're you, right. You're not there to hold her accountable about whether or not she's holding him accountable. And if she wants to give him a pass, you can, as a friend, I think, share your truth with her. You can tell her how you really feel about that and what you think she ought to do. But at a certain point, you have to let her do what she's going to do. And if she has made... 
yeah. a judgment that this is what she must do because of her imaginary sky friends or because it's in the best interest of her children. You could support her in that. How long yeah. are you very f- intimately familiar with their marriage? Are you, do you know this guy? I mean, I do know him, but it's as intimately familiar as you can be with anybody's marriage. Right. Um, but what, what have you witnessed about their marriage besides that? You know, you know that he's touched other women with his dick. What else have you seen? Is he a good father? <laughs> Is he otherwise a good spouse? Do they have a low conflict, friendly, companionable relationship? Or are they like high stress, high conflict at each other's throats? He's cheating. She's miserable. Which is it? It's, it's the latter. It's, um, high conflict. It's always been high conflict. We actually stopped being friends for a bit because, uh, there was a time when I was the, uh, one of the bridesmaids in her wedding and they were constantly calling off the wedding as it was happening. And in the weeks leading up to, and it's always been high conflict, but to me, that seemed like it was their dynamic. But then in his mid-20s, he stepped out of their marriage to speak with someone um, that was 19, maybe 18, who was a young woman that worked for him. And that caused some tension because she found out that he he had been speaking to this other woman. We don't know if anything physical happened. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, it but did. nobody knows. It did, it did. Probably did. Go on. And, yeah. And, and the same thing is happening now. And he was sending this woman that he was stepping out with. And I don't disagree that if this is the choice that she needs to make, it's not black and white. It's a big choice. Mm-hmm. But he was sending this woman pictures up until last Saturday of him with his newborn infant baby girl that they'd been trying so hard for of them together cuddling in bed saying, I can't wait till you're here cuddling with us. I can't wait to go down on you, et cetera, et cetera. Until my friend finally, wait a minute. He sent a picture of his newborn of him cradling his newborn baby in his arms saying, I can't wait to go down on you. That was a caption for that picture. Yes. Ew. Yes. Okay, yes. I'm coming around. Ew. I'm coming around to your position on this. <laughs> Quickly, you're you're convincing me that I would leave him if I were her. It was bad. It's bad and it's dirty and it's wrong. Yeah, this is a fucked up situation. Uh, I almost feel like I should get your friend on the phone, uh, but that would probably traumatize her to get a call from a, a lippy faggot with a podcast where we're discussing mm. her business. But <laughs> I almost would like to talk to her about why she's choosing to stay. She must have told you why she's choosing to stay. Because she loves him. People have done it's crazier the, shit for love. People have put up have. And put up with worse for love. Somebody married the Menendez brothers. <laughs> yes, and it's the end all be all for her. You know, she loves him. They are very involved in their church, very involved in their community. And um not that there's a risk, but she probably never listened to your podcast, unfortunately, although I've recommended it. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think that she just feels so stuck and that if she is to step out of their marriage and say that this was too much, that she will be unable to move forward in her life and find love again and to find someone to love her children. And how does she admit this to her parents, to his parents, to their pastor, to how does she the admit, people wait, in wait, their wait. lives? How does she admit that? Her her marriage the, the marriage fell because he's an asshole. That's not yes. on her. But I'm sure you've said all this to her, and she if she won't take your counsel, if she won't leave him, she won't leave him. You know, I can't give you a magic crowbar for you to pry him apart. 
just at a certain point, you have to, you know, not endorse the choice she's made, but reconcile yourself to it. Be like, all right, you're staying yeah. with him. Let's talk about House of Cards season four. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> and I think that's something just, that you as a friend and all of us as friends to people with a lot of drama in their lives have a right to do. You know, if somebody goes round and round and round with their drama and they won't take any advice and they won't change anything to de-dramaify their lives, perhaps they have a taste for the drama or they're mm-hmm. just – they want to be miserable or they're okay with being miserable. And at a certain point, we have a right to say – you, this is what you want. This is what you chose. You, you, you're not listening to me about it. So I don't want to say, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Let's talk about something yeah. else. And I'm here to help you still be, want to be your friend, still want to be good to you. And you can still come to me with your problems, but you can't come to me with this problem because you know the solution to this one and you've rejected it. Yeah. And I think that you are correct. And I think that that's where our conversations have been going in the last week is that if we're going to keep having the same conversation over and over again, that you need to know that you've heard my piece and this is what's being said. I just, I really want him to be, and I know this is probably not rational. I just want him to be held accountable for the disgusting things that he has done to not only his wife, but to his family. And I agree with you on monogamish and people making mistakes. And that doesn't account for who you are as an entire person. I I listen to you every week and I agree with you a thousand percent. I just think in this situation that he has completely been uh, hurtful and intentionally hurtful and deceptive and has mm-hmm. gaslighted her. And with all of our conversations, there's nothing that you can, you can say other than that. It's very frustrating. Cheating happens. And there's a difference between, you, you know, there are degrees and we have to take them on a case by case basis. This guy sounds like a, a regular Josh Duggar. Yes, And I'm not down with the Josh Duggar. Yeah, I'm not down absolutely. with religious hypocrisy. <laughs> I'm not down with cheating hypocrisy. I'm not down with serial infidelity. I'm not down with that. I'm not down with these kinds of lies and deceits and this kind of inconsideration and cruelty. Not okay. But that doesn't change the fact that your friend is choosing to stay in this marriage for her reasons. You know, if you can say, I don't want to talk about it. You can also say every time she brings it up, you should leave him. Then she goes on and on some more. You should leave him. Mm -hmm. You should leave him. You should leave him. You can just stick to those four words whenever the subject comes up. Still let her unload on you, but you can turn your brain off and think about other things and spit those four words out on automatic pilot. Good luck. Thank you. And I... I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for all the people that you help. You're really amazing. I, I ache for your friend. I really do. And we've all seen, you know, people in our lives who stay with people that we can't quite fathom why they would stay. But what can you do? Other people's relationships and inner lives are mysteries to us. And at a certain point, we have to just accept what we cannot change. It's true. It's like the serenity prayer. But yes, we know that (laughs) we know that this will not (laughs) we know that this will not turn out well. But yeah, I mean, I wish her the best and always be respectful, but she should dump this motherfucker already. By which you mean to say you would dump him already if he were your husband, but he ain't your husband. He's her husband. And there's nothing you can do about it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I hope you have a great day. I you appreciate too. your help and calling back. Hi. Hi, I'm an 18-year-old bisexual female. My boyfriend is also 18 and bi, and we really want to have safe sex. There's just a couple of issues. First off, I have some hormonal issues that prevent me from being on any kind of hormonal birth control. And second, 
he tends to have an unusually large amount of pre-cum. And while this doesn't really bother me, I am slightly concerned because I've heard that there can be some leftover sperm found in pre-cum. And while it's unlikely to become pregnant from it, if it does get close to the vagina, the sperm can sometimes find a way. Unfortunately for us, we've been failed by our sexual education system. So when it comes to this, we're kind of clueless. My main question for you, Dan, is when should we put the condom on before there's any pre-cum? After, if it's before, do we need a second one after there is pre-cum? And should I even be obsessing about pre-cum this much? I just don't really want to get pregnant right now. The odds of you getting pregnant via your boyfriend's pre-cum are very, very low. Live sperm cells are not really present in pre-cum. They're not a part of pre-cum. The only time they're alive sperm cells in pre-cum are when there are little sperm cells left in the urethra from a previous ejaculation. Now, of course, because you guys are both young, you're teenagers, the odds that your boyfriend has ejaculated recently, recently enough for there to maybe be some live sperm cells in his pre-cum are higher than they would be for guys who don't jack off or come as much as teenage boys do. So the risk is low, but the risk perhaps for you is a little higher Still very low, but a little higher than it might be for people in their 20s or 30s who are doing the same sorts of things you two are doing sexually. I'm sorry that your sex education has failed you. It seems Google failed you as well because if you Google non-hormonal birth control options, shit pops right up like the copper TIUD, interuterine, I think it's uterine, device, which is effective for 10 to 20 years and has no hormones in it. If I were you, I would double bag it, not put two condoms on. I would continue to use condoms with the boyfriend, be a little less paranoid about the pre-ejaculate, and go get an IUD. Get the to Planned Parenthood Go. Get the Copper T IUD. There are no hormones in it, so hopefully it won't be an issue, and it'll be an effective and long-lasting form of birth control, and it'll alleviate you of these worries of becoming pregnant. Have fun. Good luck. Mr. Savage. I'm a 20-something bi female in the Midwest. I love your show, and I've heard about some fetish dating website through your podcast. So I signed up for one out of curiosity, but also because I've been trying to find more adventurous partners that I trust to explore some of my underlying fantasies and fetishes, namely bondage, BDSM, aggression, humiliation. Not entirely sure, but very interested in trying something new and being open-minded. Anyways, I made a profile and had someone message me saying that they're a dom master and that they can teach me how to do a lot of these fetishes that I'm interested in and that they like to take women to their limits and provide them with control. Anyways, he's willing to travel to come meet me, but I'm not sure from where. I replied saying that I'm looking for a trustworthy partner and he asked me to email him personally telling me more about myself and giving him some non-nude photos. My question is how do I trust this guy or really anyone on these websites that makes sex a more essential goal without putting myself at risk? I'm really about to enter a professional career in medicine and would hate to have pictures or videos of myself on the web and I'm you know nervous about meeting somebody that I'm not sure is safe. So I would definitely meet in public first, but what sorts of behaviors would be red flags? What kinds of limits should I set 
especially for a first encounter? And what types of safety precautions are necessary if I do end up alone with him? His controlling nature could very easily excite me to the point where I might be blind to things that would be going wrong in the moment. I don't want to assume that just because he claims to be experienced, he is also safe and respectful. And how can I approach him with these concerns without offending him? Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Jillian Keenan. She's a journalist and the author of Sex with Shakespeare, which hits stores this month. It's a terrific memoir about Shakespeare, love, obsession, spanking, kink, and so much more. I really loved the book. I got to read an advanced copy uh, that Jillian sent me. Because Jillian, you've been on the show in the past to argue with me about kink as a sexual orientation, about which we disagree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's good to have you back. Well, my thoughts about that have evolved uh, oh, over have the they? last few months. Tell me. Yeah, so maybe someday we can talk about it again. No, let's talk about it now. We got you on the line. Well, you know, as you remember, I'm sure, during our conversation and in the article I wrote for Slate, I kind of stumbled over myself because I was saying, on the one hand, I identify this as my sexual orientation, but I wanted to be inclusive. So I kind of tied myself in not saying, but, 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 even though it's my orientation, doesn't doesn't mean it has to be everyone's. Some people can choose this. It wasn't a choice for me, but it can be a choice for some people, and I don't want to exclude them, yada, yada, yada. And I kind of tied myself in not. Um, trying to explain how it could be an orientation for me and a choice for someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the last year, I've kind of um, stopped referring to myself as kinky and started referring to myself as a fetishist Mm -hmm. and kind of um, put a fetish in the orientation, innate, unchosen, and lifelong category and um, started to understand kink as something more flexible that can be a choice that can be discovered later in life but you know who knows how i'll feel a year from now i I reserve the right to change my mind (laughs) well we'll check back (laughs) in with you before we get to the question let's talk about the book for a second i'm a huge shakespeare nut Uh, i have a theater background i've directed a bunch of shakespeare plays at my theater that i used to have here in seattle and so i really enjoyed the book and i really loved the way you framed you know examining your own sexual life your own sexual interests through your own love of Shakespeare. Can you, for listeners, explain the connection there and how you came to Shakespeare in every sense of the word? Yeah. Um, I saw my first Shakespeare play when I was 15 years old at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City. Um, a really amazing actor named David Ivers played Taliban that night. Um, and I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. It changed my life. And in hindsight, it makes sense that I was so drawn to uh, this performance of Caliban because the Tempest as a whole is all about power and powerlessness and a lot of those power dynamics center on Caliban. For people out there who don't know the Tempest, I was in it in college. Uh, oh, wow. Wait, who did you play? Uh, the love interest in, in Salmon Tights. It was horrible. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but 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 there's an island, there's this guy Prospero who was exiled to this island with his daughter and his books, and there was somebody on the island who owned the island named Caliban, who is sort of a monster, and Prospero enslaves Caliban and then causes a storm which brings the people to the island that Caliban or that Prospero uh was overthrown by, used to be the Duke of something or other. And that's when the action unfolds, and we meet Caliban at the top of the play. Yeah, so the whole play deals with issues of power and powerlessness, and um, a lot of those dynamics really center around Caliban. So in, um, in hindsight, it makes sense to me that I was so drawn to him because, of course, at age 15, um, like every 15-year-old in the world, um, I was figuring out my own uh, sexual identity and struggling to understand it. So, of course, I was um, 
drawn to a play that dealt with a lot of the same themes that I was struggling with internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one thing in particular that uh, the actor um, did that stuck in my mind. He stuttered every time he hit a word that began with the letter M. Uh, and I couldn't figure out why. Why M? Why that specific letter? So I bought a copy of The Tempest. It was my very first Shakespeare play and went through it circling all of the M words that Caliban says. And I realized that all of the most painful and important things in Caliban's life start with that letter, mother, master, Miranda, man in the moon, murder. Um, And it was amazing. It was like solving a riddle. Uh Uh, So after that, I was totally hooked. Okay. We geeked out about Shakespeare there for a second. (laughs) Now let's geek out about your kink. You're a spanking fetishist and you may be America's highest profile spanking fetishist. Well, not a lot of competition there, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I think you've inspired others to come out and embrace their kinks publicly. Um, Why did you choose to be out about uh, being a fetishist or being a kinkster or being into spanking? I don't think it was a very well thought out um, decision. I think it was more like a pot boiling over. There was so much that I had tried to stomp down or bury or suppress for so long that at a certain point it had to explode somehow. Um, and because I'm a writer, it, it just happens to explode in writing. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was a little bit inevitable that it was going to come out someday. Well, I'm glad that you're out about it. And there's people can be harmed in pursuit of their sexual pleasures, particularly when they involve power dynamics or bondage or any sort of power exchange. And, you know, that that's dangerous. That's risky. And we need a culture of people being out and open about that so that people who are just coming into it have really the best practices. They know how to do it because they've heard from other people who've done it successfully and safely. So that brings us to this caller. What's your advice for her on doing this successfully and safely? Into bondage, wants to explore. It sounds like she wants to explore pain and submission and giving up control and went on a website and met a guy who is willing to come and see her. What does she do? How does she do this right? How does she protect herself? Well, um, I think the first thing I would say is that she shouldn't worry ever about offending uh, this guy. Because first and foremost, a good dom will want her to keep herself safe. And if he has a problem with that, um, that's a huge red flag. It's more than a red flag. It's a reason to run. Yes, absolutely. Anyone in the scene who claims to be you know, experienced or have expertise in, um, in BDSM will be a known commodity. You know, it, it, people will have current or former play partners or at least friends um, in the scene who can vouch for them. So asking for referrals is always a, a really good idea. Um, and the last thing I would say is that I think it's important to note that unfortunately some uh, unethical tops sometimes manipulate the word safety as an excuse to cross boundaries. Um, a friend of mine who is a spanking fetishist once met with a top uh, when she was less experienced who told her that he had to pull down her underwear during spanking for safety reasons, um, which she didn't want. She wanted to keep her underwear up. She's, she's quite modest. Mm. Um, and while it's true that it can be important to monitor skin loss or other injuries um, for safety reasons during very intense play. It just wasn't true that he quote unquote had to pull her underwear down during a hand spanking. Um, he was using the word safety to take advantage of her inexperience and cross a boundary she had set. So um, I would say anyone who wants to enter the scene uh, should trust themselves and their instincts more than uh, any line that a, a person who claims to be more experienced feeds them. What's the opposite of a red flag? What's a white flag, or not a surrender flag, but a flag? What color is the flag that's a good sign? 
Do we ever talk about that? Um, we can call it a, a purple flag because purple <laughs> is the color of bruises and bruises are great. Because um, <laughs> I, I detect a purple flag right here in that, you know, he asked her for non-nude photos and he didn't try to upgrade to nude photos. She's uncomfortable, it sounds like, with having nude photos out there or videos. And, you know, he didn't come on strong and demand as a token of her submission a bunch of nude or roadkill photos of her. He just wanted to, to see her. And to see her face, yeah. which is I think not unreasonable. That's a good sign too. Yeah, totally. Um, I think another good sign would be if, you know, if he has a good reputation in the scene, if he has friends who speak highly of him. Um, I mean, of course, that's always a good sign. Um, and, and that's what websites, you know, many of them, the kink websites, FetLife Recon, there are contacts that people will have friends listed on the site. At, that, and through those sites, you can contact the people that are their friends directly. Yes, exactly. Ask them, you know, uh, this person, I'm thinking about playing with this person. Have you played with this person? Are they a good witch or a bad witch? And that's one of the ways in which the internet has made pursuing kink actually safer because it's created this mechanism that used to only exist in munches and kink scenes and communities where people actually gathered together and you could approach people at parties to get, you know, uh, references and assurances from others about this person maybe you just met. But now with the internet and friend lists on sites like Recon and Fetlift, you can approach their friends. You can approach people that they've chosen. It's not a random sampling and they're not going to necessarily be friends with people they had a bad experience with. But if you approach, right. if you ask a lot of the people that they list there, whether they've had good experiences or bad experiences with this person, that's going to offer you some assurance. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, I got I want to come back to your book for, for just another second. For Shakespeare fans out there and sex fans, and there's so much sex in Shakespeare. And as a Shakespeare lover and as somebody who's directed Shakespeare plays, there's nothing that's more frustrating about productions of Shakespeare where they de-emphasize sex. sex Yes, I agree with you so much. It's so frustrating. Oh, my God. You go see Midsummer Night's Dream. Bottom turns into a donkey, into an ass. (laughs) Do you know what donkeys and asses and horses have? They have huge fucking cocks, and they will spend so much money on like a, an ass outfit for the guy playing bottom that doesn't have a dick. Like why yes. does Titania <laughs> falls in love with this hung guy who looks like a, like that has to be part of it. Um, and I just want to say like your readings and your interpretations of Midsummer Night's Dream of uh, Taming of the Shrew of Macbeth are so smart and so insightful. The kink lens that you, that you view these plays through the prism, your particular prism, I think really unlocks some of these plays and helps us to understand some of these characters in a way that just to me seems not just legit, a legit interpretation, but the legit interpretation. Well, thank you, Dan. That means a lot to me. So I know I heard you uh, other interviews on other shows saying you didn't want to go into your interpretations because you want people to go get the book. I want people to go get the book too. It's called Sex with Shakespeare by Jillian Keenan. If you're a sex fan, a kink fan, a spanking fan, or a Shakespeare fan, or just a fan of really tremendous and terrific writing, this book is for you and you should go and get it. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you on that, Dan. Jillian Keenan, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and congratulations uh, on the book. It's really terrific. Thanks so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question for you. So I took all of your advice about blowjobs and I've been doing blowjobs, I feel like, really, really well. I've gotten a lot of compliments on my blowjobs. I use my hands, sometimes two hands. I get my hands really wet. They're extensions of my mouth, etc. I have all these little tricks that I like to do. However, the guy that I'm currently hooking up with, 
really has a thing, a fantasy for women gagging all over his cock. And I do not want to take his whole cock, which is pretty big and long, into my mouth. And I really don't want to gag. He, I've done other things that are a little outside my comfort zone for him, and I've been really GGG for him. But this is the one thing that I just don't know if I want to do. And I wonder what your advice might be. Should I try to gag? I mean, he even has a thing where I gag so much that he, he wants me to gag so much that I sit up. And, um, and I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I don't want to do a women are stupid thing and, like, what's the nicest way to bring this up? But, like, should I just tell him no? Or should I try to? Is there a way to do it? Is there a way to, like, fake gag? But I want to make him feel good, and I want to turn him on, and I want him to love it, but I don't want to gag. I have a dick. I like to get blowjobs. I don't understand the current, perhaps porn-inspired rage for this thing, for gagging, for people spitting up a bit on yo dick. I can't think of anything less arousing, personally. You know who else sounds like they can't think of anything else less arousing, personally? You. So... Put the label hard limit on this and say, this ain't happening. There are probably some women out there who like this or were BGGG enough to do this because even if they don't like it, they're not going to be traumatized by it or they won't find the sensation disgusting and a libido killer. But me personally kind of find it disgusting, kind of find it a libido killer. So it's kind of not going to happen for you with me. If that's a deal breaker for you, goodbye. That's all you got to say. You don't have to surrender your GGG card if you don't want to do a thing. We are not all required to do all things to be good sex partners. We can rule things out. The problem is that sometimes people rule out things without thinking about it because it's not their thing, but it's not a thing that's going to upset them or traumatize them. And if they give it a chance, they give it a try, they may like it or they may take enough pleasure in the pleasure they're providing their partner that there's something in it for them too. You know, the sex negativity in the culture really does lead a lot of us to wrinkle our noses at or reject out of hand things that if we gave it a chance or gave it a try or gave it a minute's thought, we could tap into the fun and the pleasure and the sexiness of. That said, there are things that don't work for us for whatever reason, ways we don't want to be touched, things we don't want to do and never will want to do and no amount of tapping into the other person's pleasure, the pleasure we're giving them is going to elevate that thing to sexy for us. And it's part of the sexual self-discovery process and determining what those things are and then just being very direct about it. With me, this isn't happening. This can't happen. And if he has a giant sad or if this is so central to his sense of sexual fulfillment that he can't go without it, then you shake his big, long dick goodbye. I've been taking care of my grandmother for a year now and it's come to my attention over the year, not just recently, that uh, she has unfulfilled sexual desires. Uh, She's 96, and I feel like even though it's icky, you know, I want to do everything I can for her, and if there's something she needs, I want to help her get there. I'm really not sure how to proceed. I I don't want to just walk her into a vibrator store. I wonder if I should talk to my mother, her daughter, which would be one generation removed, 
or to talk to one of my sisters, two generations removed, who might be a little more hip to it. The concept uh, of how to move forward, or if to move forward, another option would be my aunt, who is a specialist in, uh, let's see, she provides therapy to sexual deviants, criminally deviant sexual people. I guess that's it. Joining me by phone to help tackle this one, Joan Price. She's my go-to expert on senior sex. She's the author of several books, including The Ultimate Guide to Sex After 50, How to Maintain or Regain a Spicy, Satisfying Sex Life, and her award-winning Naked at Our Age, Talking Out Loud About Senior Sex. She blogs at nakedatourage.com, where she talks about senior sex and reviews sex toys at age 72 from a senior perspective. All right, Joan, what should this guy do for his horny 96-year-old grandma? Well, you know, I usually object when people use the term granny sex to talk about older age sexuality, and I always say, it has nothing to do with whether we have grandchildren, but in this case, it does. It's all about grandchildren. First of all, yay for grandson for taking this seriously and for caring and for taking care of his grandmother. And admit it, you wanted me to help out on this so that I'd be the one to get in trouble, <laughs> not you, for how we answer this. That's, right? usually, that's usually why I bring guest experts in, so that I can, oh, uh, I figured I you can out. let them walk the plank, and I can sit on the boat on a deck chair drinking a margarita. <laughs> well, you do a good job of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, he used the word icky, and of course, I've got a rally being an advocate for ageless sexuality, that we are sexual beings lifelong and our need for touch has no expiration date and isn't icky. However, the idea that he is the one that has to help her out, yeah, he could see that as icky. So I would say, how did he communicate her need? Uh, did she say to him, uh, wow, you think, you're, you think you outgrow the sex drive, but honey, you don't? Did he catch her masturbating? Or did she say, oh, honey, touch me here? You know, that would, how she communicated it would help us know what he can do to help her. Given that we don't know that, I have four suggestions, and I think he should do all four. One is to talk to his grandmother, just use his words, as you always say, and to say, what are you not getting here that would make life easier for you or something you know, that would not put her on the spot to talk about sex, but mm -hmm. would give an opening so she could if she wanted to. Uh, I also think he should talk to the aunt. She's a therapist. That's good. However, just because we have, an, uh, we have acceptance of we're sex positive about other people doesn't mean necessarily that we're sex positive about our relatives. Or our parents. So, the aunt presumably is the daughter of this woman as well, just like his mom is. Right. So if he maybe broached it to her with something like, I used to think that, that the older, that the idea of sex in our later years is really icky, but I've been reading some things and, and, and I, I think maybe it's not. What, what are your views on that? And if she continues to be sex positive in her response, then he can say, so here's why I brought this up. So grandma is humping the couch. <laughs> what should we do about that? What should we do? And, and the answer has to be, how can we 
let her express herself sexually without shaming her, without blaming her, without making life more difficult. Okay, now I, I, I want to introduce something. He doesn't describe what's going on with his grandmother or how he knows these things about her his I know. grandmother. And I have to introduce this possibility. We're talking about not a 66-year-old, not a 76-year-old, but a 96-year-old. That's right. And I have friends with elderly parents who, you know, as they've gotten much older, there's – it's not Alzheimer's, it's not dementia, but there's been a certain disinhibiting where there's yes. suddenly in this parent who used to be very buttoned up and very restrained and very uh, – I don't know, not sexually repressed, just, you know, sexually discreet. Suddenly there's yes. a lot of sexual acting out that's out of yes. character and they yes. don't quite know how to handle it. And the answer can't be in all cases just to facilitate it or allow for it because some of the sexual acting out is crazy inappropriate. Well, that could be true, but then you can have the same kind of talk with her that you have with a child. This is fine when it's private. Mm-hmm. Um. It, and, and he's probably not the one to do that, but I, I think his aunt, who's a therapist, might help. And, and, and maybe, you know, we don't know if she's doing anything wildly inappropriate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not talking, talk, like, I don't think humping the furniture is wildly inappropriate. I don't think masturbating is right. wildly inappropriate. I'm talking right. about friends whose parents are suddenly groping people in public who are yeah. groping their caregivers. Like, what if he's on the receiving end of some sexual attentions from his grandmother, and this is how he's processing it or understanding it, that she needs something in her life besides me, if indeed she's made, you know, inappropriate sort of remarks yeah. to or physically, inappropriately initiated physical contact with him, and he wants, wants to throw a vibrator in the room and run. That might not be the well, right answer. That leads us to my suggestion number three. Thank you for that, Dan, which is to show her photos of sex toys and reviews of sex toys, for example, the ones at my blog, nakedatourage.com, and ask her if she would like some of these mm-hmm. and get her one. You know, it just, she may be, if indeed she is acting inappropriately, and we don't know that, that doesn't mean that the need is inappropriate. Right. means the expression is inappropriate. So if, if he can help guide her... To- Right, guided to channel it guide toward it, right, some sort of to release. something that's private and some relief for her, exactly. And he definitely should have lube where she can reach it. Because if she is at, at 96, if she is trying to masturbate, she may be finding it quite painful mm-hmm. because she's likely dry and her tissues are thin and they may be tearing. I mean, this is something that happens. So if he can have some good quality lube in a pump bottle where she can easily get to it and use it, that could take care of some of the problem right there. Does he have to involve the whole family in this? Because my instinct was just to tell him to get the vibrator, get the lube, give it to grandma. And if if the sister or the mother or the aunt have a problem with that, they can go fuck themselves because he's the caregiver here. And this is care that that she needs and self-care that she needs. And he's just helping her out. I would totally go along with that. Yeah. He sounded as if he, he didn't feel secure about how, what to do or how to do it. But if he's listening to this and he says, yeah, okay, I could do that. I could, I could print out some of these vibrator reviews that seem like uh, maybe they'd work for her, then I could do that. I don't have to involve anyone else. That, that would be perfect. But if he's feeling, I can't be the one to talk to her about this or she's making inappropriate advances to me. Well, I think I, if she's making inappropriate advances or doing something that, that speaks to potential 
dementia or disinhibiting that may need to involve like medical professionals and 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 other kinds of checkups then he should involve others but i just think the more people involved the likelier if indeed there's nothing wrong with grandma and she's yeah. fully in possession of her faculties and she's just horny the more people that yeah. he involves in a discussion about what to do about grandma's horniness, the likely you are to involve somebody who's a sex-negative controlling nut. Well, you're absolutely right. And even if they are involving a doctor, that you could get the, the sex-controlling negative nut there. Joan Price, she is the author of several books, and she blogs at NakedAtOurAge.com, where she talks about senior sex and reviews sex toys from the senior perspective. Hey, Joan, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's always a pleasure having you. My pleasure. Hi, Dan. My boyfriend and I have been together over five years, and we're planning to get married soon. And we love each other a lot, and we make a great team, and we agree on nearly everything except the topic of monogamy. And I'm not very monogamous, and he is, and uh, we've tried having an open relationship before at his suggestion. And I took advantage of that arrangement, and he did not. Uh, We put the brakes on it when he started getting upset about meeting or running into people that I'd been with. I might have assumed too much about the ability to integrate the primary and extracurricular relationships on a friendly basis, though he'd never made it very clear that he wanted me to keep things out of his view. For better or for worse, meeting these people was hurtful to him, as he told me, because it happened without his informed consent. For my part, I don't see any problem with this as long as everyone is consenting and honest, and I wouldn't be upset to learn if he had been with someone else as long as he were being safe and kind to everyone. He says that I haven't considered the complications of what happens when other people find out or when the two worlds meet. Couples that we know in Chicago run the gamut from mono to poly, so I can't really get an idea of what's normal for gay couples in 2016. I know it's normal for me, though, and I've told him I'm pretty sure I can't be sexually monogamous my whole life, and I'd rather not feel like I'm sneaking around. But he now acts like any extracurricular activity has the risk of causing a blow-up when it's disclosed to him or to other people. I really love him and I want this to work out. How can we reconcile our differences and have a happy monogamous marriage? You agree about everything except monogamy. That's a big exception when it comes to marriage and commitment. But you guys have been together five years. That's a long time. So there must be enough about this relationship that works. And there's a way to make the non-monogamy work as well, which is obvious and that you aren't aware of this arrangement leads me to believe you might be a little bit willfully obtuse and perhaps a little unfair to your boyfriend about the whole topic, which is D-A-D-T, don't ask, don't tell, that you can have a little bit on the side, but you have to keep the evidence away from him. He doesn't want to know about it or find out about it or have his nose rubbed in it. And part of that for him is socially monogamous. He wants you two to be perceived socially as defaulting to monogamous, benefiting from the monogamous assumption, although a lot of people in gay land don't make that monogamous assumption about couples because so many gay male couples are not monogamous that it almost makes more sense. I think the majority of gay male couples are not monogamous. It makes more sense to default to a non-monogamous assumption, but I'm not your boyfriend. I'm not your fiance. He wants to benefit from that monogamous assumption and meeting the people that you fucked around with or having the kind of relationships with those other people that you fucked around with where you can be jovial and open about it and your pieces on the side or your one-offs can meet your boyfriend and everybody's cool with it and comfortable with it. That's not the kind of non-monogamy your boyfriend wants. This isn't really a problem except of your creation because your boyfriend is down with non-monogamy. He's down with what you want, but you're going to have to 
have non-monogamy the way he wants it, which is more discreet, don't ask, don't tell, which are going to place certain limitations on you logistically. It's going to make it a little bit more difficult for you to get off with other people because you're going to have to get off with them in circumstances and at times where your boyfriend's not going to uncover evidence of it or have to interact socially with those people. So you may be a little less non-monogamous than you would like, but you won't be monogamous, which you also wouldn't like. Not too high a price of admission to pay to be with someone that you say that you love. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old heterosexual female with quite a quandary. I've been dating this guy for a few weeks, and things were really fun and exciting, and we kind of fell out of communication because we've both been really busy the last few weeks. I was feeling a little frustrated with his communication and naturally Googled him, and the first thing that came up was that he's a registered sex offender. I know this could mean so many different things, so I didn't want to jump to the conclusion that he's a rapist or a child molester. When I did further internet investigation, it turns out that three years ago, he was specifically charged for, quote, committing sexual assault by knowingly inflicting sexual intrusion or penetration on a victim if the person causes the victim to submit against the victim's will, end quote. Is this a gray area or is this just a pretty black and white picture? I haven't confronted him about any of this, and I'm not even sure that is a fair or, or, or appropriate thing to do, especially at this time in our relationship. I've been trying to keep things at a distance because I'm naturally freaked out by this information. He reached out to me, expressing that he really wants to spend time together, and I really found this person to be sweet and charming and respectful. I'm conflicted about the information that I know and the person I think I know. What do I do? You can't unknow this. And you are in a position now where for your own protection, you need to say to this guy, I found your name on a sex offender registry and I read this and I feel entitled to an explanation. What happened? And then you verify that. Trust but verify like Ronald Reagan said. If he was convicted of a crime, there are public records somewhere. There are court transcripts somewhere and you should read them, get them, read them. And weigh them against what he told you. And hopefully there won't be a discrepancy between what you found when you did a public records request and what you learned from him when you made a direct request for information. People who commit sex crimes, the recidivism rate is actually lower than for people who commit other sorts of crimes. 14% of people who've committed a sex crime reoffend within five years. 24% reoffend within 15 years. Are those odds you're willing to run for this guy? You say you really like him. Maybe this he learned his lesson. Maybe he got the treatment that he needed. Maybe he did something stupid under the influence that otherwise he would not have done and will never do ever again and doesn't drink anymore and has taken all sorts of steps to prevent himself from harming another woman in the way he harmed that woman. Those are judgment calls you're going to have to make as you decide whether or not you want to continue to see this nice guy who committed a sex crime and went to prison for it and landed on a sex registry because of it. It's a terrible position to be in. You will have to trust your best judgment. If you do indeed decide to confront him about it and ask him about it and do your due diligence for your own safety about this, you can also decide – it's a perfectly rational thing I think for you to do in a circumstance like this. Decide not to see him again because you don't want to take the chance or you don't want to take the risk. Whatever choice you ultimately decide to make, I support. 
Hey, Dan, you expected the calls to come, and here's one of them. I am a bartender and have been for six years. I have never been unfaithful to a partner. And to add to that, at the end of a shift, I am way too tired at 3, 4 a.m. to possibly have sex, let alone pursue some drunk, gross person from the bar. Yeah, I'm calling about uh, 498, uh, about uh, guys faking orgasm. I just wanted to say I'm otherwise totally, I guess, normal head guy that I used to do it all the time. I used to fake all the time. And basically, I would either I would fake pound and hope that she wasn't noticing that anything was coming out afterwards, which I think they don't check that much, or definitely with the condom thing. And at the very least, sometimes I would fake muscle cramps or something to just get out of it. And usually it was somebody who, where the relationship was winding down, but I really liked them, but I was losing interest. I knew it was time to pull the plug, but I still liked them and I wanted to try and please them. But I'm sure a lot of the guys do it because it's pretty easy to fake it. Hey, Dan, 43-year-old straight male. I Listening to your Tuesday After Mother's Day show when you were talking about how gay parents have this discrimination that they have to deal with when they take their kids out. I just wanted to kind of identify and relate. I was a single parent for 14 years. And most, they're good kids. Most of the time, there wasn't much, you know, correction or discipline involved. We just hung out. We had a great time. There were two awesome uh, adults now, pretty much, and they straight-A students. They turned out they turned out all right. But we would get that a lot where we would get, I mean, every time I'd go in the grocery anywhere, people would come up to me, and they'd be like, and the most common one I got was on the weekends, where they'd say, oh, it's Dad's weekend with the kids. You know, so it's kind of a similar similar thing. It's like, you know, you're you're dealing with the discrimination in a way, and it's, it's kind of a different kind. You know, I'm not going to, I don't need any rallies or protests about it. It's just, you know, an annoyance. I have to deal with it five, six, seven, eight times. We'll be at the playground, people ask us. be at the grocery, people ask us. So I came up with um, an answer. The best answer for that, you could think about the question. It's really, really rude. What if something had happened to the mom? In our case, she just left, you know, she was gone, you know, it's, and my kids are okay with it. You know, we had a good time. So, so, but you know, still, it's kind of a rude question. Well, where's mommy? You know, well, mommy, mommy could be, you know, our mommy was in Arizona. Like uh, we're in Indiana. She was like, what, 3000 miles away. We never saw her. So, you know, it's not a good thing to be bringing up to people all the time. Maybe they don't want to think about it. So what we did, uh, and I don't suggest that anyone else do this is we just said she died. And then the kids would look down and look really, really, really sad. And that was just sort of our way of dealing with insensitive people asking insensitive questions. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Joan Price on Twitter at Joan Price. And follow Jillian Keenan on Twitter at Jillian Keenan. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue Then Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for having